Well, this morning we have an opportunity to close out that section which began in chapter 3 and verse 18. The Apostle Paul has been moving through this household code. And so he talked about husbands and wives. He talked about parents to children. You know, this is going to seem odd to us here sitting as a 21st century audience, but he, he addresses slaves and, and their masters. You see, because as Paul would have written this, there was this understanding that the, the head of the household would have been over everyone in the household. And so that includes, here at the end, slaves and their masters. Now, so I wanted to say a, a word or two about that, just to uh, kind of set it within its proper bounds, within its historical context, to help us understand and to set it as distinct and somewhat different than, than the North American slave trade. And so let's just offer this as, as a moment. One of the things that we'll recognize is distinctly different about the slavery issue in the first century within the Roman, uh, within the Roman province would have been that it wasn't primarily racially motivated. And so they were equal opportunity to the offenders as they went in and engaged in conquest, as they waged war, when they defeated an opposing army, they would bring people back from there. They would bring people back and they would uh, use them in their houses, they would use them within their city. Now it was also much more widespread, and so if you were to walk down the streets of ancient Rome, some people say that you would encounter as many as 50% of the folks that you'd encounter would be slaves. You could tell by the way they were dressed, but they would have different occupations than today. Uh, there would be doctors and teachers and household workers, and some of, some of uh, the people that you'd encounter would have high and respected jobs and high roles in different households. And so we see that's distinctly different. Now, one of the reasons that Paul, it's thought that Paul includes such a lengthy treatment here on the issue of slavery is because he is sending back, he's sending back Onesimus, to his master Philemon and we'll pick up that book here in a couple of months and Onesimus is a runaway slave and so Paul has to address that and because Onesimus is being sent back to the church there in Colossae and he's carrying this letter back to this one who is his former master he has to weigh in he has to has to make some commentary there but when we recognize slavery within the confines of North America it is decidedly racial right and so it was white Europeans largely going and getting black Africans and bringing them over to both North and South America and the Americas and some of the outlying islands. And this was a, a, a racially uh, propagated slavery. One of the things that we see that is decidedly different in that is that slaves had largely menial jobs with here in the North American context, which is decidedly different than that there in the first century. Another thing that we find is decidedly different and decidedly suspect is that as they begin to move through and churches begin to segregate and churches begin to not be churches of white people and black people gathered together, slave and free gathered together in one roof, that was decidedly different than what we find in the first century context where masters and their slaves would have worshipped within one church together. And then, in fact, we begin to see within the North American context where slave masters, where preachers, where denominations begin to use the Bible as a tool for enforcing subservience. And so they would encounter verses like this that, that begin as a bondservants obey in everything, who are your earthly masters, and they would skip over any type of treatment that recognized the black African being a person made in the image and the likeness of God because they were considered to be subhuman, because they were considered to be below engaging with, because they were below uh, any type of worthy consideration. They took this idea in some sense from Aristotle who thought that they weren't 
able to engage in rational conversation. And so we see to the great, great even downfall and the great embarrassment of the Southern Baptist Convention that in the 1840s when it was beginning to come together and it was becoming clear that there was an ideological shift between the Triennial Baptist Convention in the 1840s and this group of people who happened to own slaves that also wanted to go serve as missionaries. And so in 1845 when it came along, there's a group that said, no, you cannot own another person and go tell somebody about the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. These two things are incompatible. And from out of this birth, the Southern Baptist Convention. Isn't that exciting? You can see why some people have a hard time saying, I attend a Southern Baptist church or I'm a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, the great sadness is it wasn't until 1995 that as a whole convention of churches, 40,000 churches, that they came together and offered, offered a formal apology on the basis of their past indifference. And so we see that when we come to, be, to an issue such as this, we can't merely cover over the issue of slavery. We have to recognize the church as an institution's own culpability and complicity in perpetuating the devastation that came with slavery. Much to our embarrassment. Much to our sadness. And much to the perversion of the gospel. Amen? But when we look at this, we recognize that not many of us, or presumably none of us in our households today would look at it and say, slavery is a good thing and none of us within our households have slaves none of us are owning them and so the 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 most obvious connection to this although we recognize that it's distinct and different is the connection between employer and employee and so that's primarily how we're going to seek to look at this but i think paul offers a strong word regarding work ethic which is something that's incredibly important we want, as employers, we want our employees to work hard. Amen? But oftentimes, as employees, we want to work just enough. And Paul goes in and he addresses this quite well. So let's look at it from this mindset. Paul writes, and let's read 22 through 4-1 together. Paul writes and says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul opens up this deal, and, and the fascinating thing for me in this is that still within the first century, there's this understanding that slaves are not to be accorded some of the niceties that you'd engage with anybody else in society because they are the lowest of the low. But from the midst of this, from the midst of this gathering, this corporate assembly, who does Paul turn to address first? Slaves. So it gives us a it gives us a window into a couple of different things. One, we see the dynamics of this group that when it came together, it wasn't a group that was split. It wasn't, uh, you sit over here and you sit over there. This group was together. This group was existing as one body. And to this group, he laid out the instruction first to the slave. So he said, slaves, obey in everything those who are your, and the Greek renders this as those who are your fleshly lords or your lords of the flesh. And so he's pitting already this understanding that there's something reduced in their capacity to exercise oversight. Paul is bringing the masters down a level. 
But look at how he describes how their obedience, how their service needs to be. He uses two words. The first thing he says is not by eye service. And the second thing he says is not as people pleasers. Now, it, it, it's this idea that he goes in there. And we see this, if you have your boss, your manager, and he or she is standing over your shoulder and watching you work, chances are you work in a different gear, right? You find a different gear, you're much more diligent, you're not doing this number. Oh, check, I mean, don't check it, I'm just checking the time to make sure I'm doing this efficiently. Because I set, I set timers and stuff just to make sure, you know, not Facebook and social, and YouTube not doing any of those things. And so this idea of, of, of people pleasing and, and of doing it for the eye, what Paul's talking there in this is, listen, don't merely obey your masters when they are overseeing you. And we see this as direct import for us. Some studies indicate that as many as four and a half hours a week are stolen by employees from their employers engaging in time theft. Now, time theft, you might think this is an insignificant deal, but when you add that up and think, man, nearly six weeks a year, you are getting paid to go on YouTube. You are getting paid to go on Facebook. You are getting paid, or rather, you are stealing from your employer so you can do something that is not directly relatable to your job. And as Christians, we should be those who work diligently. And we shouldn't be those who who are looking for ways to take the easy approach. We shouldn't be those who are looking for ways to get our, our funds, to get paid from our employer, but all the while we get to do whatever we want. This is why he goes in there and says, listen, don't merely engage in obedience by way of eye service and don't do it as a people pleaser. Now this is curious for us. It is good in most indications uh, within, within the, the employment context of making your boss happy, right? Right? Does anybody have a boss in here that just says, man, my boss loves it when I make them mad. Like, I think this is their favorite thing. They like to be unhappy with me. No, most of us, are, are, we, our, our bosses like them or like us to do our jobs well so we bring them joy or so at least they don't have to actively manage us. But what Paul says in here is don't do your job well as a people pleaser. And so what is he saying? He says, don't primarily have an eye on your boss. Don't have an eye on your manager. Students, if you're studying, don't have an eye on your parents and you're only studying to make mom and dad happy. You're only studying to make your teacher happy. Now, Paul related this much more broadly to the gospel in Galatians 1.10. And he asked this question. He said, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? And look at how he pits these. He says, if I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And see, immediately we see the Apostle Paul putting in a line of division here. He says, on the one side, this is how you can live if you desire to please men. But if you want to live in such a way to honor your Father in heaven, you have to, in some sense, work ultimately for the Father in the midst of being obedient to those who are immediately over you. And so it changes the disposition of our efforts. And this ties into what he says next. He says, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So you have this understanding that in the middle of work, when you step in on Monday morning, when you clock in on Sunday night, when you're studying and doing a variety of different things, that God is there and he is giving oversight to your efforts. 
think this, this serves as a, as a decided challenge for the way that we do our jobs. Because most of our uh, employers, most of our bosses, they don't have time to sit there and constantly manage us and constantly look over our shoulders. And so we have this tendency to want to slack off, to want to, to just kind of, oh, why is he such a difficult person to work for? But we find out that God is our gracious father. He is the one that we delight in serving. And it fundamentally changes our work ethic, doesn't it? Or it should. It should challenge the way we go into Mondays. It should challenge the last 30 or 45 minutes on Fridays. It should radically transform our efforts because we're working from a disposition of being those who delight in pleasing the Lord. Not those who don't bring God into the workplace. He says we want to do it with this singleness of heart. The ESV renders it the sincerity of the heart. So he takes that idea and begins to run with it. He says whatever you do... Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now think about your last week. Think about the last big project you had before you. Think about school. A lot of our students are going back to school and, and how this begins to translate and change these things. Now, our boys, if they don't get their homework done, if they don't get their schoolwork done, we make them stay on that task until it's finished. We don't let them move on to the next thing. They'll have to miss out on fun activities with the family because we want them to recognize, one, the value of hard work, two, that work doesn't go away, but we always want to direct them and bring their heart back to this understanding that how you engage schoolwork is a reflection of your submission to Jesus. And Paul here applies it to everything. He says, work heartily under the Lord. He says, work for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, Christians, we should be those who work hard. And we should delight in working hard. We should be those who are absolutely, totally exhausted with nothing left at the end of the week. Why? Because we have been working hard. We have been hard at work and we have been doing it to glorify God in the midst of our efforts. So if somebody comes to you and says, why are you working so hard and why are you so diligent? Don't you know that they don't even care? Don't you know that they don't even observe? Don't you know that nobody reads these reports and say, because this is what is placed in front of me and this is how I delight in honoring my heavenly father. So it's everything. It's all these various facets of life that we give ourselves to constantly. Now he comes into this and so the slave would have heard this next part in a decidedly different way. He says, knowing knowing that from your Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, in the confines of our life, most of us, or some of us anyway, are working for the reward of retirement. So this is why you scrimp and save. This is why you stock up the 401k. This is why you're putting money away. And so you, you think there's some point where I don't want to have to be beholden to somebody else. At some point, I don't want the alarm to go off on Monday morning. At some point, I no longer want to go, go in. At some point, I no longer want to have to fill out a vacation request. And so we are working hard, some of us, for this earthly inheritance. And we're socking it away and we're killing ourselves to get it done. Because we're, we're living in such a way right now difficultly so that we can live differently later right and so we're saving we're scrimping we have a lake house we have retirement we have vacations that we want to take and so we're saving for these things but he's not talking about this 
And I think Paul speaks right into the American predicament of work harder to have more, work harder to be different later. And to this, he says, we need to change the way we're working and we need to change the goal for which we're working. We aren't working for an earthly reward. We're not working for faster cars, bigger houses, better internet. Oh, that's just something in my house. And so we're not working for these things for our own immediate fleshly receipt. We are working for them for the long goal of having been proved worthy. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 4 said it this way. He says, this is what we will receive. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now to the slave, this would have been wonderfully free. To the Roman slave in the first century who was unable to receive an inheritance from their master. To a slave in the first century who had no no inborn hope of receiving something. To find out they have this inheritance coming their way. And it's not an inheritance that can be taken from them in war. It's not an inheritance that can be taken from them in famine. It's not an inheritance that can be lost by them when they're sold from one master to the next. It is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept safe in heaven for them. He changes this. He says quite simply, listen, you don't work hard so you get these things coming to you. You work hard to please the Lord. Who has bestowed upon you a terrific inheritance greater than anything you'd be able to imagine? But perhaps you're in here and you're hearing this and thinking that Christianity is primarily about hard work. And you have this understanding that if you work hard enough, that if you do well enough, perhaps God will be pleased and he will welcome you into heaven. Well, the Apostle Paul counters this in Ephesians 2 and 8 through 10. Look at what he says. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift from God. So as a Christian, we're not working hard to receive salvation. We have received salvation from our Lord, the one who has died, who has been raised again, who died to take on the penalty and the punishment of our sin. We're not working hard to earn that. He has bestowed that gift upon us. He says it's not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for, everybody say, good works. You are created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. Some of the good works that God has set up for you are your job. Some of the good works that God has set up for you are parenting. Some of the good works that God has set up for you are how you engage your neighbors. And some of the good works that God has set up for you is how you live your life in retirement. So we find ourselves coming again and again to the Lord saying, what would it look like for me to walk worthily, mightily, enduringly in the good works that you have set aside for me? Submitting ourselves to the direction of our Father, giving our hearts not to the things around us, but giving our hearts first and foremost to Him. And saying, Lord, would you cause me to be mightily at work in these things you have set before me? Paul covers it all in this next statement. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. To the slave who would be constantly called back to the reality of their forceful master. And would say, yeah, yeah, I get that, but. Yeah, yeah, I get that, but. 
to you on Monday who would say, listen, I understand in all these things, I'm supposed to honor the Lord, I'm supposed to do well, I'm supposed to work hard, but you don't have my bonds. You don't have any of the realities of my life. Paul comes into this all-subsuming statement. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. It's terribly freeing. It's wonderfully challenging. That in the midst of all the various things that we find ourselves doing in life, all of those things are done under the banner of being a servant of Christ. That the Messiah sent by God has redeemed us, that we live as lowly servants and slaves under our Lord and Master Jesus. In Him we serve. We parent under this paradigm. Recognize if you're parenting, and regardless of what age your children are, you're going to find that over the course of them growing, they do well and they do poorly, right? So they're good days and bad days. And so if you primarily draw in your worthiness, if you primarily draw in your success on, uh, I want to launch an 18-year-old off into the world, or I want to see them baptized, or whatever level you begin to set upon this, primarily in those, those levels and in that uh, that, that, that kind of finish line mentality, you are working as a people pleaser. You're working as a people pleaser. But when we come into it with this understanding that we are serving the Lord Christ, our parenting begins to be transformed because we recognize in saying for the 157th time, no, don't stick a metal fork in the outlet. We are serving the Lord Christ. In the middle of saying for the 251st time, no, don't throw your brother down the slide. No, don't eat that. No, you eat that. And all these various things, we recognize that all these different engagements can be done. And in fact, from a Christian perspective, must be done as unto the Lord. And we see this covers the whole gamut of life. When we're studying, when you're a student, if you're primarily studying so you can do well on the test, there's always another test. If you're primarily doing well in high school so you can get into college, well, college translates to, translates to master's, and master's translates to Ph.D., and Ph.D. translates to poverty. And all these various things begin to work in this understanding that if you are doing these things well for the next level, for the next job, for the next promotion, there's always something else. But when you do these things well in your pursuit of academic excellence, and you're doing them with a the desire, Lord, I want to please you, and to please you looks like doing my level best. Now, your level best might be a C, but many of us make C's because our level, our level best has never been something we considered. Serving the Lord and pursuing education has never been something we considered. All we want to do is to go through this understanding that this is what Western Americans do. You move up through school, you eventually go to college, you may or may not hate it, and you get a job because that's what you've been told you do. Never allowing to enter into your mind, what would God have me do? Where would God have me to serve? If, if everything was on the table, what would he have me submit myself to? That's how we work heartily under the Lord. That's how we honor the Lord in our work. In the midst of our working environment, we don't work to get raises. We don't work for the recognition of our bosses. We don't work it, it primarily just out of desire that I need to work hard so they fire someone else and not me. We do well in the midst of our work. We do well in the midst of our jobs because we want to glorify God in our efforts translates to retirement the american lie about retirement is this understanding that even as a christian you can work until you've saved up enough money and you've paid off enough debt that you can do whatever in the world you want to do you can play golf you can travel you can go on perpetual holiday and that all the rest of life in your fading health 
is to be lived for your marginal enjoyment. But that's not what the Bible seems to suggest. That you can leverage your retirement. That you can find yourself in the midst of retirement with nowhere to be on Monday. And nowhere to be on Wednesday. And no reports to file and no boss to answer to. And you can find yourself in the midst of these things with enough money, with enough free time that you can go and live on mission. You can wake up on Monday morning here in this community going around and saying, in whose life can I make a profound difference? You can find yourself when the summer rolls around saying, where can I travel that people need a person of my skill set, a person of my abilities, or they just need a warm body? They just need somebody to come in there and tell them that there is a God who created heaven and earth that sent his son Jesus to die for them, and you're there to tell them about it. Such an incredibly low skill set. Would you be willing to submit yourself to following the Lord in retirement? You are serving the Lord. Teachers, when you came back into school this year, it's decidedly different and difficult. And you can focus on those difficulties and, and the unrealistic expectations of the state and how upset parents are. But what translates that, what changes that, is when you recognize you're never going to make those parents happy or the administration satisfied. You're never going to do enough to all, change all these things. But what you can do in the midst of these challenging and trying times is serve the Lord and serve Him well. And that's our prayer for you. That's the prayer for our students that are returning to schools after the longest spring break on record, that they would do well returning to the difficulties of the academy. We all have an opportunity to serve the Lord in the midst of these things. Now look at how Paul changes. He begins to move from the idea of slave to turn towards master. But in the midst of these two things, he inserts this verse telling them that there is no partiality. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And so he, sle- he speaks to the slave who was finding themselves only really doing right when his master was around. He was only really doing right to please his master. And he speaks to the master who is terrible and awful and oppressive, and there's nothing distinctly different from him in the way that he manages his household from any other lost person living in, first, living in the first century. And to both of them, he says, you have a Lord and Master Jesus who resides in heaven and you will stand before him someday and you will give an account on the basis of how you live and engage with those above you and with those below you. So he turns to masters and he says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Now there was this prevailing idea that if you, if you took it too easy on those in your charge that they would take advantage of you. And some of us, as, as managers of people, we have the same idea that we bring in. We want to manage with a heavy hand. We don't want to be friends with our employees. I, I don't let my employees look me in the eye on Mondays. I, just, I think it's a good level to start. And, and so you bring that same idea. I said, don't look me in the eye. <laughs> Sometimes you have to get started on Sundays. And so it's this, this idea that, that he challenges the conception of their rights and privileges over those people that they owned. And he says, your treatment of them has to be based in some sense out of Genesis 1, and 27, that they're made, made in the image and the likeness of God, that you don't get to treat people however you'd like to, that you treat them distinctly different because you recognize they have intrinsic worth. They have value as people. Too often in places where we are managing people, we consider not their intrinsic worth, 
but we, tr- we, we, we consider their utility. Are they useful? Are they useful for what I'm trying to do? Are they useful for this purpose? And so when their utility is compromised, they themselves are compromised and we kick them to the curb. Now this isn't an invitation to to say we need to perpetually hire people and bring people into our employment who are unqualified to do the work. But this is, is an understanding that we need to value people for more than their utility. The previous institution I worked for was terrific at this. The best lesson, or negatively, the worst lesson I learned there was not to value people, but to only ever value their utility. People are dispensable. You can always find someone else to do the job. This is a decidedly unchristian approach to engaging people. I think we see this. Certainly when we value our employees, when we value the people around us, we can be testifying to the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ who calls us to see them having intrinsic worth. People made in the image and the likeness of our God. And that's a gospel issue. Amen? Paul closes the door in this whole issue. When Paul began back in 318, he was talking to husbands and wives, and he was talking to parents and children. And assumed in this whole thing was, as the patriarch of the family, the oldest male reigned supreme. That nobody was above him, that everybody was below him. Paul completely knocks his feet out from underneath him. And he shows the terrific equality found to be in the kingdom of God here in this last clause. Why do you treat them justly and fairly? Because you know that you have a master in heaven. The same word that Paul used back in verse 22, they have this, you have an earthly Lord. Here in verse 4-1, he says, you have a heavenly Lord. Jesus rules over slave and free with no partiality. Jesus doesn't look down from heaven and say, you are upper management and you are a peon. He sees us all in equality. We are all viewed in the eye of God equally through the shed blood of Jesus. And it's to him we serve. To him we owe allegiance. To him we owe deference. And it's to him that we work heartily. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the instruction you give us regarding our work. I feel that many of us see our work as a standalone from the gospel. Not allowing our Christianity, our walk with you, our submission to you to be a thing that impacts our jobs, whatever our work schedule is. One of the things I've seen in this description of the household code is how the gospel permeates in the relationship between husband and wife. The gospel permeates from parents to children. And the gospel permeates our places of employment. So God, would you have us managed distinctly differently? In a decidedly Christianly way. God, would you have us work in a way that brings you honor and glory? And Father, would you move in the heart of any in this hearing or listening to this later? 
but they've been working diligently to please you. God, would you help them to cease striving, to cease working, to throw their hands out and to freely receive the gift that you have given them and the forgiveness of their sins in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, would you lead them to call out for the forgiveness of their sins and for salvation in his name. Father, we're thankful for the power of your word, for its majesty, for its clarity. I pray that you would guide us as we submit ourselves and seek to live in faithfulness to your word. We pray these things to you in your son's name. Amen.